On this episode, I interviewed Jill Cook, who is a current tendinopathy researcher as well as a clinician. On this episode, we talked all things tendinopathy, starting off first, what is tendinopathy? We talked about the pathophysiology of tendinopathy. We talked about how to diagnose tendinopathy. And then we went into Jill Cook's kind of four-stage continuum of rehab and how she likes to treat tendinopathy, ways to treat it, ways not to treat it. Uh, and then we kind of ended on some specific things dealing with um, athletes and some, some types of questions about that with managing it in season and just how to manage tendinopathy in athletes. So really great listen. Here it is. Welcome to No Week Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Jill Cook, who is a researcher in tendinopathy and current clinician. So really appreciate you for being on, Jill. Uh, first off, if you just want to talk a little bit about kind of your background, how you got into researching tendons, uh, your past experiences with um, being a, a physiotherapist, and then kind of where you're at now. Yeah, sure. So I am a physiotherapist by training, as you said. I got involved in basketball ball um, in my early sports medicine career and I had a lot of men with patella tendinopathy and when I went to the literature to look for answers there weren't any and I was very confused and I found that the sort of principles that we use at the moment uh, seem to work well with these guys so started to do some pretty poor research and really have progressed with some fabulous mentors from there through to where we are now. Perfect. Um, and then do you have any, I guess, current things you're doing right now at the moment with, I mean, obviously not in lockdown, but um, with uh, any of your research you're doing at the moment, just a brief overview of kind of what you're looking into? Yeah, um, uh, I, I have a very small team that are looking at a lot of uh, pain science stuff. So that's based with Ebony Rio's work. Um, Sean Dockin's doing a lot of imaging stuff. Uh, but our two big projects at the moment that are coming to fruition are one looking at the effect of hormone replacement therapy on, on outcomes in older women with tendinopathy. And the second one is looking at the onset of patella tendinopathy in adolescent athletes. Okay, interesting. Excited for those. Um, I guess so. First off, let's just kind of start off from the basics of um, tendinopathy. So I guess first, maybe the main topic we can talk about is just generally defining what is tendinopathy and maybe starting just with physiology of it and then kind of going from there. Sure. So tendinopathy is the clinical term. And this is a really important thing to realize that it means pain and dysfunction in a tendon without referring to the pathology within the tendon. And that's deliberate because the pathology we don't know anything about. We can actually look at it on imaging and see that in fact there's changes in the tendon, but we actually don't know whether that's a degenerative tendinopathy or potentially an inflammatory one, even though I don't necessarily think that exists. But we actually deliberately stay away from pathological diagnoses. If there is tendon in a if there is tendon pathology within a tendon, then it can be uh, sort of a spectrum of disease. Mostly what we see is degenerative tendinopathy. That is, it's been there for a while 
and uh, it's completely lost structure. The tendon itself in the area of pathology has completely lost its structure and uh, has very disorganised collagen and uh, too much proteic, too many proteoglycans, too many cells, too much vascularity. Um, and pretty much it's a, it's a non-healable lesion. What's important though, is that doesn't mean that the tendon is weak. So what we know from Sean Docking's work is that if you do have an area of pathology, you usually have plenty of good tendon structure that's normal around the area of pathology so that we know in just about everybody we can load these tendons without worrying necessarily about the area of pathology. Mm-hmm. And then it, do you want to maybe go just go into a little bit more? Because I think a lot of people get really worried when they do have tendinopathy. And if they do get some sort of scan on it to where that shows, you know, like um, you're saying there is that really, you know, quote unquote, bad spot right there. I shouldn't do anything. I'm scared to load it. It might tear and so on. And why that's not true. Yes, this is such an important part of what we need to talk about is that people um, present to their doctor or physio with pain. They are sent off for a scan. It comes back with words like degeneration and tear and uh, disorganisation. And then people aren't counselled exactly what that means. What we now know is that the imaging that we see when somebody presents with pain really has no bearing on the clinical outcome. That is, you can have horrible looking pathology and be pain-free. You can have horrible looking in pathology and be painful, but still become pain-free. And there is nothing in the imaging that allows us to prognose whether that tendon will get better or not. So all of these fear, fearful terms that people hear and become frightened of loading, and then uh, practitioners who are unclear about what imaging means in tendons and and the same is true in osteoarthritis and the same is true in low back pain is the imaging really doesn't give us very much in terms of our clinical diagnosis our clinical prognosis and as an outcome measure so very often we see people who've had uh, a tendinopathy for a long period of time and they've had serial imaging what what happens is they get very depressed aside from fearful Um, because the imaging doesn't change. Well, we know at the start it's not going to change because we know that these lesions don't change. Um, What we do know is we can change pain and function without the imaging ever looking any different. So using imaging to see if you're better or not is a really uh, poor way of assessing progress. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe another good point, if you want to talk about that, um, is a good summary of, you know, why you shouldn't be fearful of loading. But I think a really good point you made in one of your presentations was was the fact that technically you have more, quote unquote, good tendon in a pathological one um, over just your uh, non-pathological tendon. Yes. The body's not stupid. It, it, It knows that it can't lose tendon quality. Um, with with an area of pathology without having something to allow the tendon to, to take load. And we actually have no idea how the tendon has this response. But what we see in a, in a tendon with an area of pathology is, in fact, that they have as much good tissue as a normal tendon. The tendon's thicker and people often sort of uh, conflate thickness with pathology and bad, whereas thickness is often 
good tissue and good. Um, so we we always talk to people about a thick tendon is a good tendon. This is something that Hawk and Alfredson said many, many years ago without really understanding what the underlying um, imaging showed. But we now know that the good tissue is there. It's a it's a less probably less than ten percent of people who don't have a massive positive response to pathology in terms of um, their tendon capacity. So what we know as clinicians is that we can load these tendons and we have to talk to our patients about all of these things that we've mentioned today, about losing fear of what the imaging shows, about losing fear of loading, about how positive loading can be, what we're aiming to do, which is improve function in these people, um, and that improving function is actually going to change the tendon pain. It's not ever going to change the pathology, but we can actually get that person back to fully functioning and participating in their activity or sport. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. So just trying to eliminate those fears and make sure that they progressively load, which we'll get into. And in I'm a little bit here, I guess, kind of going back to originally when we were talking about the, the beginning of it with the, um, the pathophysiology of the issue and then the causes behind it. Could we maybe go over a little bit more in, uh, in depth on kind of maybe structurally if they're what you guys know so far about it and then the general causes, and I know it's different on each tendon, but just kind of some general causes of it and maybe even the loads placed upon them? As best we know, and this is inferring from uh, different aspects of research, the tendons are not different to other musculoskeletal tissues, particularly joint, cartilage, discs, those sort of things, is that, it is that it is a load accumulation disease. That is, the more you load it, the more likely you are to develop a pathology. It's almost as though the tendon has a certain capacity over its life. And if you accumulate a lot of load early, you are more vulnerable to pathology earlier. Whereas if you spread your load over your life, you may or may not get pathology as you get older. So the concept that this is related to ageing is true, but not because tendons get old and get pathological, is they, as you are older, you have been more exposed to load. So um, a sprinting athlete, this is Kujala's work in 1995, if you were a sprinting athlete when you were young, you were 31 times more likely to have an Achilles tendonopathy when you were in your 60s and 15 times more likely to have a tendon, an Achilles tendon rupture when you were older. So this compared to other athletes and to, and to controls. So that's a very, very clear representation that, that load is an important cause of tendon pathology. The key exception is the patella tendon. This is the newer research we've done. We've published some studies in this area. Um, patella tendonopathy appears to be quite different in that it's mostly a disease of maturation. That is a condition where excess load, as the tendon is trying to mature, is the source of pathology. This is less likely to be a load accumulation disease. So mostly load accumulation, patella tendon a little bit different. Okay. So yeah, just again, a little bit of difference there, but mainly um, just that kind of progression of load upon it, not necessarily the aging um, for the pathology of it. 
uh, I guess maybe we could talk about to the the kind of the different loads placed upon the tendon and whether that is um, is is if you have any I guess points if that's a potential cause or if that's um, ir- one irritates more or is better for so on I guess. There's three loads that a tendon experiences depending on where it is in the body and what its role is. So the first load is energy storage and release. So this is where the tendon works as a spring, and these are. Both our upper and lower limb tendons, but the Achilles is the clear and easy example. As you sprint, your tendon stretches and it returns the energy back to you to propel you forward. So energy storage and release is, is the big load on tendons. And the more your tendon stores and release energy, the more likely you are to have a pathology. So that's why we see it in sprinting and jumping and change of direction athletes because they're maximum energy storage and release activities. The second uh, load that we experience is compressive loads. So this occurs where the tendon attaches to the bone and people might think, well, that's not very common, but the answer is most of the tendinopathies we see are at the bone tendon junction. So in fact, we're usually talking about an enthesopathy, not a tendinopathy. Um, Achilles tendon, mid-Achilles tendon is pretty much the only tendon that um, experiences true tendinopathy. So compressive loads at the insertional point is another big load. Fantastic study in rats, unfortunately, by Soslowski showed that the combination of the energy storage and release loads and the compressive loads were the most damaging to a tendon. So the more you load in an energy storage way at length, so, you know, starts in sprinting or, you know, deep changes of direction, things like that will really place maximum load on the tendon. The third um, load that tendons experience is a friction load. That's not within the tendon. It's from between the tendon and the surrounding tissues in the peritendon structures. So we see only in some tendons that have a, 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 you know, considerable peritendon, such as the Achilles, um, the foot and ankle tendons, the hand tendons, we see uh, a pathology in the peritendon structures. So depending on the loads you place on them, a tendon, how often you do it, all of those things contribute to the type of pathology you get, how soon you get it, um, and you know, what we need to do to get you better. Okay. Yeah, so a kind of combination of all those things we talked about to potentially, you know, causing that um, that tendinopathy. So now that we've kind of covered that the the pathology of it, I think maybe the next topic we can kind of move into is the diagnosis and what slash if there is the best way to diagnose a tendon tendinopathy issue? This is by far the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems. We have a lot of problems in tendons, but this is one of the big problems. In, in our clinical practice, we see a lot of people with long-term tendon pain. They've been diagnosed with tendinopathy and easily 50% of them don't have it, um, have been misdiagnosed. So people tend to diagnose, clinicians tend to diagnose based on imaging appearance and palpation soreness, that is if you touch the tendon, it hurts. Neither of those are diagnostic. So you can have imaging changes on tendon, in your tendon, and still not have pain from your tendon. We know that 40% of athletes who are playing in the NBA have patellar tendinopathy, or sorry, patellar tendon pathology, but not all of them have symptoms. So imaging doesn't tell us if the tendon is a source of the pain. Neither does palpation soreness. So if you touch a tendon and it's sore, we know from some research we did ages ago that just being athletic makes your tendons a little bit tender to palpate. 
Um, and there's some research in, uh, in and around the knee, both osteoarthritis of the knee and patellofemoral pain. The patellar tendon is the sorest thing to touch. So if you touch a patellar tendon and it's sore, you actually don't know that the tendon is the source of pain. So there's the wrong things to do. The right things to do, the two things that we think are diagnostic of tendon pain are load dependent increase in pain. So if we increase the load on the tendon, that is increase the energy storage and release loads, then we see a, a, a an increase in pain to match the increase in load. So in the Achilles, as an example, you know, slow double leg heel raises will be less painful than single heel raises, which will be less painful than double leg jumps, which will be less pain than single leg hops. That sort of increase in pain as we increase the load on the tendons is really important. And the second thing is that the pain is local to the tendon pain. Tendon pain doesn't distribute. So if we do test and add load to a tendon and look for an increase in pain, we're looking for it to stay local. So it won't spread over the knee, it won't spread up and down the Achilles. It, it stays in a single spot. Now there are a couple of exceptions. The glute med is an exception to that. We do see local pain, but we can see spread because of the large and numerous bursa that are associated with the tendinopathy. Um, so, but on the whole, they're pretty good guidelines to give you an idea that it is a tendon pain. Okay. Um, I guess also then maybe to distinguish between a tendinopathy and then more of a tenosynovitis issue, do you have any um, recommendations for that one as that might be maybe a differential diagnosis? Yep. There's, 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 there's markers right through everything you do. The type of load that caused the person to present to you will be different. So you will get a, a, a peritendon response with repeated movement because that's what induces your friction loads, the tendon gliding up and down against the peritendon. So big ranges of motion, repetitive, um, without very much load will be a history that somebody presents with as a peritendon, whereas... Uh, a tendon will pre present with more, you know, the energy storage and or compressive type load. So the history will give you a different loading uh, history. But secondly, in a peritendon, you don't see a load-dependent increase in pain and you don't tend to see as much localised pain. So a peritendon often will be worse the more movement you do. So the, if you do a big range of double leg heel raises, that can give you actually more pain than a single leg hop because you're irritating the structures by doing big ranges of motion. Uh, so it, it, it presents completely differently. Um, Ten years ago, I would have said you don't see very many peritendons, but I think they're, uh, they're hidden. They exist. And, of course, they only exist in tendons that have a big peritendon. So, the, as I said, the Achilles and the foot and ankle tendons, we don't see it in the teletendon, we don't see it in the glutes, we don't see it in the hamstrings, upper limb, um, I'll leave alone. But um, in those tendons that do have a substantial peritendon, uh, then you have to have that as ready as a diagnosis. Mm, yeah, so I think it was a good kind of summary with differentiating between if one of they do have tendinopathy or a peritendon issue. So I guess maybe just to clarify, um, if anyone doesn't, I guess, understand 100%, first off, 
talking about um, the tendon versus peritendon, maybe it kind of explaining the differences of those two. And then, yeah, just start there, I guess. In terms of structure, you mean? Yeah, yeah, just kind of the structure and the function of it really quickly. Okay. So the tendon is our major load transferring structure. So we have muscle, tendon, bone. It transfers the, the force from the muscle to the bone. But as I said, that's that's not its major role. Its major role in, in tendons, we see tendon pathology and tendinopathy is, is to stretch and release um, energy, is to store and release energy. And, and return that back in terms of effective locomotion, I guess. So that's its major role. The peritendon is to allow the movement between the, the tendon and the surrounding structures. So you need an interface. You can't have tendon and then, you know, um, skin. You actually have to have something that allows the skin to move over the tendon. So the peritendon structures are there to allow the tendon to glide and move without um, creating problems in the surrounding structures. They're actually very different tissues. And if we wanted to get into it, there's a lot of connective tissue in tendons. And this is Hazel Screen's work that shows that the connective tissue or the um, sort of the tendinous, not peritendinous, but the intratendinous connective tissue is actually very important in how we store and release energy. So uh, that's very complex. Um, we've written a couple of things about that. Um, but in terms of, I guess, your, your listenership, um, really considering the peritendon as the structures that go around the tendon and they, they sustain very different loads. They'll, they'll be irritated by very different loads um, and you need as to be able to distinguish between the two. Okay. And then, yeah, that's a good clarification between those two. And then I guess maybe going back, the one thing I, I didn't talk about as much is the different differentiation of the tendonitis versus tendinopathy and why you move towards that. And then if swelling and tendon pain and how all that goes now with your research. Okay. So tendinopathy is pain and dysfunction in the tendon. So that's nothing to do with the diagnosis of pathology. The pathology terms are tendinitis and tendinosis, one being an inflammation of the tendon, one being a degeneration of the tendon. Tendinitis as a diagnosis in terms of clinical presentation probably doesn't exist. Inflammation does exist in tendons, but it clearly doesn't drive pathology and it clearly doesn't drive pain. So it is part of a, a body-wide response to um, an injury. But as far as clinicians and, and athletes and things are concerned, we don't worry about tendonitis. We did this in the 80s and 90s where we managed it as an inflammatory condition. We used ice and anti-inflammatory and rest and it did us very badly. We didn't do well. As soon as we decided that inflammation wasn't driving key things then and changed our, our strategies to not resting and loading, we, we got much, much better results. So... I think we can ignore the term tendonitis, um, not saying inflammation doesn't exist because I get in trouble for saying that. It does, but it's not our clinical issue. Neither is degeneration. Degeneration, tendinosis in a tendon is not a clinical issue either. It exists, but it's not what tells us anything about how that is that tendon is going to do. It comes back to the imaging. You can show tendinosis on um, imaging, but it doesn't mean anything. So... Um, we don't have to either get our, our um, 
get upset about that being um, something that happens in tendons as well. The swelling comes with the increase in water and proteoglycans that we see in tendon pathology, tendinosis, plus the extra tissue, the extra normal tissue that we see in a tendon. So that's where the swelling comes from. It can go up and down, but it doesn't change terribly much. Even when you're pain-free and fully functional, it'll still be bigger pain. We actually don't know where that comes from. It doesn't come from the pathology because there's a lot of people with pathology that don't have pain. So it's not generated by the pathology itself, but we actually don't know the nociceptive driver in tendon, tendon structures that are abnormal. Okay. So now, now that we've kind of covered, yeah, that's good. Good answer on that one. Now that we've covered the, like what it is, pathology, um, we're the, clarified those terms and kind of went into the diagnosis of it. I think now kind of the most important, um, is going to be, you know, how do you treat it? How do you rehab it? Um, and, and kind of go from there. So I know you're really big on loading and that's what all the research is saying. So maybe just kind of giving a brief introduction on kind of what you found on that. And then we can kind of go from there. All right. So we know that if you have pain, you change what you do and how you do things. So you unload to be sure that you don't produce pain or to, to make your life easier. And so your brain does that. It says, don't put load on that structure because it's hurting me. Now, tendon pain is a little bit different from some other musculoskeletal pains because there's such a strong relationship between load and pain. So... For example, if you had osteoarthritis of the knee, sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's not. It might hurt to go upstairs, but it might not. It might hurt when you're sitting on the couch, but it might not. Whereas tendon pain hurts every time you load it. So every time you go for a run or every time you run up and down stairs, your tendon will give you pain. So your brain very quickly realises that you shouldn't load that because it hurts. And so what we see in people with tendon pain is really quick and quite profound unloading. And with profound unloading comes dysfunction. And so people very quickly lose strength, endurance, power, all of the things that they need to um, be functional. And so the tendon pain drives unloading, unloading drives dysfunction, dysfunction drives more pain. And so we get into this vicious cycle of people getting less and less capable of, of tolerating load because they've done less and less loading. Complicated by clinicians who say it's inflammatory or you have imaging changes and you mustn't load this because it's going to make it worse, you must rest, we'll put you in a walking boot so that it gets better you know, the pathology will heal, wrong, 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 people present with uh, really complex and long-term unloading strategies and they will not do well until you change those. So I think I think to kind of progress on to that, though, talking about your the rehab continuum and your four principles you have and what, what you guys have developed as kind of how you would treat a tendon. Yeah, so our four-stage pro program is pretty well documented now. Not tons of research on it, but that's all right. It works clinically. So we use isometric exercises to control pain um, early in the process. So we published on this a few years ago. A lot of people used it. 
we've had a lot of pushback from it um, and I think it's been uh, used poorly in clinical practice. We use slow, sorry, slow, heavy, heavy long loads and in an isometric fashion, um, fashion to try and just control tendon pain early on in the process and if somebody is training and playing. Very quickly, we move from that to heavy, slow resistance training. And again, this is um, taken out of context. Heavy, slow resistance training doesn't mean somebody in a gym with twice their body weight on their shoulders doing squats. What it means is heavy and slow for the person. Now, for an older person, it might be just double leg calf raises without any load at all. For a young person, it might be, you know, leg press at 1.5 times body weight. So there's a big spectrum of what heavy, slow resistance means. And it means something very different for different people, very different for different tendons. But you have to get muscle strength as a, as a bottom line of allowing this tendon to become a, an efficient energy storage and release tendon. So we spend a lot of time doing a muscle strengthening program and then a muscle strength and endurance program to give us a base to um, load our tendons off. What is important about heavy slow resistance is it also changes the mechanical properties of the tendon. So we get an increase in tendon stiffness with heavy slow resistance training and with isometrics. Once we have a good base to go off, we then add the higher loads, which is the energy storage and release loads and the compressive loads. Now with tendon to do energy storage and release loads, it has to be fast because tendons are viscoelastic, if you load them slowly and try to store energy with a slow load, you just get a longer tendon. You don't actually get any, any energy storage at, at all. So we start to add faster loads. These are more functional, body weight only, not with additional weight in the early stages, that's for sure, and probably not ever. But um, this is where the tendon load goes up enormously. So the isometrics and the heavy slow resistance are relatively low tendon load. Once we start to do these energy storage and release loads, it's much, much higher load. This is also where we start to add compressive loads if they're a factor in the person's presentation. And then after that, it's about putting that in a sporting activity context. And again, that's very variable. If you have a lady with glute med tendinopathy, she might only want to go shopping and do a bit of gardening. And so we would have a very different endpoint for her than a sprinting athlete who wants to get back to 400 metres hurdles or something like that. So this is all the four-stage program is uh, there for people to pick and choose. You have to go through some sort of sequence. You don't have to do isometrics at the start. You don't have to do sports-specifics um, function at the end, depending on the person, but you certainly need the muscle strength and you certainly need some sort of energy storage and release capacity in most people. Okay. Do you, so for, for all those different categories, do you have, I know it's going to be generally, it's going to be really different for the person, but is there a general time frame that you see kind of commonly going through different stages or is it just super dependent on the person? Uh, it's very de dependent, more, not on, less on the person, more on the length of unloading and the length of dysfunction. If somebody's had it for six months, they're going to have pretty profound muscle strength issues, muscle power issues, muscle endurance issues, tendon mechanical strength issues, everything that we see. Uh, so that's 
then takes us a fair bit of time to restore muscle strength. We know that it takes, you know, 12 weeks to get some muscle capacity back. Um, so if somebody is very weak, does have um, a lot of atrophy in their muscle, then it's going to be a much longer process. If somebody presents to you with a couple of weeks of tendon pain, then we're going to see a lot less dysfunction. It's going to shorten up the time in terms of the rehab. By far the biggest part of our process is actually restoring muscle strength, muscle power, power muscle endurance. That's, that's a, you know, in someone who's had a long-term tendon pain, that's often up to three months. The rest of it is very much dependent on the person, the sport, how much they need to be able to store and release energy in their tendon with or without compression. So somebody who's an elite, an elite athlete who needs to train two or three hours a day every day of the year is going to be very different from somebody who wants to run five kilometres three times a week. Um, so that end of the spectrum is much more individual. This end of the spectrum is much more dependent on the length of time they've had pain and the amount of dysfunction that they have. Okay. And then so even even within, um, you know, sets, reps, how often and so on, that's going to still be more dependent on their their future needs as well. Um uh, in, in like those late stages obviously in the beginning it's gonna you're saying it's more on how far they've been off but then obviously how much you try to push them to is going to depend on where they want to go day one you make judgments on your end stage if they're a young athlete who needs a big load they go straight into the gym and start some heavy slow resistance if they're a lady who wants to walk their dog five kilometers three times a week so not going to be doing much then your start place is very different. I'm not going to make her go and squat 100 kilos, you know, ridiculous thing to say, but, I mean, that's the impression that people get. You can get by with home-based exercise, body weight exercises for people like that. Um, so day one, you're looking at the person, you're looking at how much dysfunction they have, you're looking at the end point and you're planning your program based on all of those parameters Okay, I think so. And then another question here, I think uh, should take in mind, especially for athletes, when or anyone dealing with tendon pain, what is okay pain wise to to push through to try and progress? And how do you monitor? We did too much one day. Maybe let's go back. Do you have any guidelines upon that? Yeah, very easy guidelines. <laughs> um, two key things about how much load. If you do something today and your test pain is worse tomorrow, you've done too much the day before. So we very rarely worry about pain during load or exercise. We worry about the 24-hour response. So the Achilles is the easiest example. If you have five minutes of Achilles stiffness in the morning, you do some sort of training today and it's 10 minutes of stiffness tomorrow, you've clearly done too much. And so it is... Uh, the Achilles is brilliant because you have this complete talisman of what you've done. You, you can't go wrong with loading an Achilles because you can teach somebody very easily that stable pain in the morning is good, improving pain in the morning is very even better, worsening pain in the morning is bad, change your load. But the second thing that's really important is tendons don't like any sort of change and so you can't decide that if you can run one kilometre without pain today, that tomorrow you're going to run five. 
um, that's another good way of, of guiding load. If you can run one today, you can run 1.2 kilometres tomorrow and then 1.4 a couple of days after that and 1.6. So it's about progressive load. The thing that upsets most people, the reason people present with tendon pain start or, an, a, you know, a, a failure of rehab is an inability to progress the load appropriately. So most of the people we see, you can work out that there's been a massive change in load. So I've never had Achilles pain. I have Achilles pain. What's changed? Oh, well, I went on a holiday down the beach and I started to run on the sand. Well, there you go. There it is. <laughs> so it's very easy often to pick up a change in load as the initiating factor. But if people you're rehabbing get worse, your change in load is often the biggest factor and you've just got your loading wrong. You're either your exercise wrong or, or your or, or your sort of return to sport uh, timing on in some sort of way. You won't be upset by heavy, slow resistance training. Anything in the gym is not going to hurt a tendon unless you do some too much compressive loads because it's slow. It's the faster stuff. It's the energy storage and release stuff that gets us into trouble. So it will be at that stage that you start to get into trouble loading tendon. Okay, yeah. So making sure the 24-hour picture is the biggest determiner of kind of where we're going and monitoring there. And I think another good point uh, is that kind of the energy storage phase. Do you, or how do you convince people or talk to people about, look, okay, you're doing heavy slow resistance. I'm doing heavy weights. I'm not doing any pain. I'm good to go. And you're like, no, you need to go back to that. You need to do the energy storage and release and maybe talk about the importance of that phase to then progress into your sports specific stuff. Yeah, there's two ways to do that. Um, usually is the failure. So um, I've tried that. I've done this and then I go back to running and it, and it hurts again. Um, so repeated failure is um, a sure way of getting people to buy into being adherent in that phase. Um, and if they don't want to be in here and cut them loose, let them go and mess it up, they'll be back to say, yep, you were right, it didn't work. Um, but the second thing is just education. You, you just the whole process of this is about educating the athlete about you know what their imaging means and you know why you can't unload and why you don't need to rest and you know all of the things that we've sort of talked about already. But if if you've explained loading to them and why loading is important and how which loads are um, high for them then they will tend to to realise that you're making a whole lot of sense. Um, most of the people I see have failed repeated things and so um, it's a bit easier for me. It's a little bit harder for your clinician in the early stages. Um, but again, I, I would say education is one of your strongest tools to get people to understand uh, why certain things will make them better and certain things will make them worse. Yeah. Okay. And, and I guess when, when do you, do you have any criteria or just general clinician based decision-making on when to say, okay, they're done kind of with that energy storage phase and you start to work them back into more of that sports specific stuff. Do you have any checkpoints you want to go through there? Yeah. Um, it's always about progressive loading as we've talked about. So you would start with some very non-functional, not non-functional, functional, but non-sport specific loading. So some skipping, some stair running, if it's an Achilles, that sort of stuff. But at some point, you have to progress to change of direction, the jumping, the stuff that they need in their sport. 
And what we would say is, again, that has to be a progressive load. If you can do 10 jumps today and you're no worse tomorrow, you can do 15 jumps. And then if you're no worse tomorrow, you can do 20 jumps. And you would build them up through that process to what they need in a sporting environment. So if you've got a volleyball player, you might want, they might need to jump two or 300 times each session. Um, so you obviously have to have very high loads um, and be sure that they're tolerant to those highlights before you can come back to training and you would obviously modify training at the other end. But I would want to see something resembling a training-based load in the clinic or under your supervision with no flare the next day before I would say, okay, let's start a modified training. Um, one of the key sort of uh, uh, barriers or the, the key sort of things you have to leap over is that transition from clinical um, loading to training type loads. You have to have some sort of transition there. You can't say, yep, you're clinically fine, go back and train two hours, five times a week. That's not going to work either. Um, so it's about talking to the coach, um, trying to get the athlete on side with the progressive nature of the loading all of those things become really important. So guess what? It's education again. <laughs> All right. And education again. Uh, I guess that the last one we kind of, I guess, gone as much into depth on would just be that uh, isometrics phase or uh, and then kind of to, to try and deal with pain. And um, so I guess, what did, do you have any specifics on that one as like any guidelines on how to perform that more, you know, more correctly to where you actually get the benefit? Yeah, so we see a lot of people who've been prescribed isometrics and haven't got any benefit out of it, and it's usually that they're poorly prescribed. Two reasons, they don't work. One, they're poorly prescribed, or two, they don't have tendon pain in the first place. So we would say clinically, if isometrics don't work, then go back and think your diagnosis. Now, um, and we use it diagnostically. If we are at the end of our history taking and our examination and we still don't know if this is primarily tendon pain or something else is contributing. We use isometrics to see if it changes their pain by half or more. So say they've got six out of 10 hot pain, you do isometrics and it drops to two out of 10, then you know you've really got some contribution from your tendon. So it can be used in diagnostically in that fashion. Um, but, you know, People don't do it heavy enough or long enough. So you write a paper that says this works um, and then people modify it. Same as the Alfredson program. You know, he said three lots of 15 bent knee, three lots of 15 straight knee for Achilles and people did four lots of 20 and did it every second day and did two lots of five and, you know, they just make it up basically. The answer is, and Ebony did this uh, before she actually did the study, she found that low loading didn't help. So it ha the loading that we used in her study was 70% MIVC. So she found that if it was low levels of load, it didn't help. And if she, she found that if it was short holds, it didn't help. It had to be the combination of heavy for that person and long. And this is where we get into trouble. You know, you, oh, you can't make an old lady, you know, do a heavy load. Well, yes, you can. It's heavy for the person. So it might be a kilo, yeah? Um, and so, uh, it, again, it's about translation and clinical practice and being a good practitioner and all of those sorts of things that uh, make the isometrics effective or not. 
um, usually people underload them. So we see people that have done, you know, straight leg raises as a, as a for example, as a isometric hold for a quads tendon or a patella tendon. They won't have it in the first place, but the second place is that's not nearly enough load. Um, and then second, doing three lots of 10 second holds. That's not going to help either. And thirdly, not being a tendon, not being tendon pain. There's your three reasons it doesn't work. If it is tendon pain and you load it sufficiently, isometrics help pain substantially and will help pain for several hours. And so we use it a lot in athletes prior to training and playing because that allows them to not only be uh, to have less pain, but also Ebony's study showed that it decreased cortical inhibition and that they were 20% stronger after a bout of isometrics. And so nothing changes strength by 20% in a couple of minutes and isometrics do. And so again, there's places and people and time where they're really beneficial and there's places and people and time where we wouldn't tend to use it. All right. So yeah, if they if they followed those principles, would you use it frequently kind of throughout um, before your rehabs for like a higher level athlete um, to try and get the best out of you, everyone? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We wouldn't use it frequently because it often gives pain relief for quite a few hours. So you would okay, use okay. it before training and playing. But in a high level athlete, we use it before they do the heavy slow resistance. Because if it does decrease cortical inhibition, and it does allow you to get a better motor drive to your muscle and it increases your strength by 20 percent you'd be crazy not to use it because you're going to get better outcomes for your strength work and a quicker recovery of your muscle strength muscle power muscle endurance all of those things by using it so i don't see why you would not choose to use it in again older people walking their dog we wouldn't bother but for definitely for an athlete use it prior to strength and we would use it prior to strength right through um their rehab and also because we keep strength work after they've returned to training and playing we would use the isometrics prior to strength work in that phase as well okay so definitely no brainer there i guess kind of the last main question i want to ask here so a lot you know you, you talk about if you're just treating tendon pain um in the, in the continuum and how to do that do you modify that all or how do you go about an athlete that you know, is in season and still wanting to play, is there a way to still progress them towards, you know, being, you know, fixing as much as you can their tendon pain while they're still playing? Or do you, in order to really fix it, you have to have them sit out (laughs) and so on? So there's your first decision. You have, have to look at the athlete and decide, is this tendon able to tolerate continuing to play or train or not? And the answer for me is pretty obvious if it's affecting performance so that they can't do the things that they're used to doing. It places them at enormous risk of other injury, you know, things like concussion, you know, contact um, injuries, that sort of stuff, because they're not where they expect to be. And what we see is mostly tendinopathy in athletes occurs in our very, very fast athletes, our ones that can jump and change direction. That's the strength of their in their sport that's what they lose and now if it is affecting that then you really have to consider having them out but for example if they're a basketball player and their strength is shooting three pointers they can continue to train and play because they can still perform in inverted commas with their tendon pain 
Now, if you choose to leave them on the court, there's a lot of things you can do to make their tendon pain better. So isometrics help a lot. Um, heavy slow resistance training to maintain some muscle strength helps a lot. Working the rest of their kinetic chain works a lot. So working your calf and their other anti-gravity muscles, any agonists or, or that you need to be supporting that, working the other leg helps a lot. Modifying their training helps a lot. So pulling them out of the really high load um, drills and things, modifying the playtime they get, all of those things contribute to you being able to keep that person playing. Um, and you can usually do a fairly good job. What you have to do, though, as soon as you have an opportunity to give them time away from their sport in the off-season is you have to rehab them at that time. Um, that comes with all of its, all you know, a whole range of issues of the athlete that is actually a 12-month-a-year athlete. The best example of this is Angel Vassas. He works with the Spanish jumping team in track and field athletics. What he does is he does a three-month prehabilitation for them for their patella tendons. All, all elite jumping athletes have patella tendon often pretty much. So he works them for three months and then he lets them jump for nine months and then he brings them back in and he prehabs them, makes them as strong and as tolerant as he possibly can and then he lets them go. And what will happen is they'll gradually lose strength and power and everything over the season. They'll get a return of pain, brings them back in for a three-month rehab. So that, that time between seasons is so important for um, making sure your athlete is resilient as possible for the next season. What we can't do is rest people. So people say, oh, you've had tendinopathy this season. Have a rest in the off-season. You'll be much better. They're much worse. They're, they're good for a week or two. And then their tendinopathy comes back and actually worsen the season before. Okay, so rest them from those hot loads from their sport, but still be training, you know, all the other aspects of strength and conditioning um, to try and, yep. So I guess if, so let's say you determine an athlete was, you know, they couldn't uh, perform with their tendon issues, uh, and then you started doing your continuum, after they were kind of past the, your heavy, um, your heavy slow resistance training and more into the kind of uh, energy storage, um, and getting towards the middle to end of that, would you slowly start trying to put them in using isometrics? Or are you still going to be like, look, we have to go through this whole entire thing? Or is it, again, just really dependent? Just so dependent on the yeah. person, the sport, what yeah, position yeah. they play, what their role is. If if you think the tendon, it's, it's really, really simple. If you think the tendon is tolerant to the loads that the person will experience when they're training and playing, then they're okay. If they're not tolerant to those loads, then you might get them through one game or two, but they'll progressively get worse and worse and you'll be back where you started. So you either get them better before you put them back or you change what you put them back to so that they are not as exposed to loads that exceed their capacity to do it. So it's it's a balancing act. You're dealing with coaches um, who may or may not be able to or be interested in having an athlete back who's not doing everything. All of those things make a difference. You know, the athlete's ability to tolerate pain. I mean, volleyball players are a classic. They have five out of ten pain every single time they play in their knee. They don't care about that. Um, it's, it's cultural. So all of those things make a difference to your decision-making. So you can't be black and white about what is 
a time to go back and what isn't. You have to deal with it. And, you know, if you were two weeks out from Olympics, what are you going to do? You're going to change a whole range of other things, adjunct things, to try and get that person as pain-free as you can so that they can actually have their one chance at glory. So, so many factors. Yeah, definitely. So just, again, individualise it as much as you possibly can just as everything else. Yeah, have to individualise everything you do in attendance. But as a clinician, you have to individualise anything. I hate recipe programs. They, they're so pathetic in terms of dealing with all of the factors that we've talked about that if that's what you do and what you rely on, then give up now because you're not. <laughs> All right. Um, just, to, just to finish off here, if you want to give a quick summary kind of on, I guess, the main points you want people to know um, for the tendinopathy issues, uh, and then we can finish it up here. Uh, get your diagnosis right. Um, don't rely on imaging. Do lots of education. Know strength and conditioning. Know what load the tendon is exposed to. Know progressive loading strategies. Um don't rely on three lots of 10 of TheraBand. You've got to be so much better than that. Um, learn from your mistakes. I mean, we still make mistakes in getting trying to get people back. And every time we do make a mistake, it's, ah, that's the reason why that didn't work. Um, I think we now know what we need to do with everybody with a tendinopathy, but we can't always achieve it because of all of the factors that we've talked about, you know, sport, what the person wants to do, what the coach wants to do, all of those things influence the results. So it's, it's hard work and this is um, really pertinent to clinicians is nothing's easy. If you're looking for an easy solution to this, give it, give it away because it, it's actually quite a lot of thought that needs to go into the process from the minute you see that person to then returning to the sport. Yep, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Jill, for being on. I really appreciate it and the, the knowledge and everything you provided. Uh, I guess last thing here, if you just want to say, if you don't remember the exact usernames or anything like that, that's fine. I can get them from you and put them in the show notes. But um, I know you provided you know, a lot of great research on this. So is there anywhere people can go to you know, read that or see um, social media accounts that you post information on and so on? No, I'm a very private person, <laughs> so I don't have anything um, on social media, I use Twitter and I do respond to people's queries on Twitter. That's one of the things I do, but obviously not complex questions. But no, unfortunately, I prefer not to be um, a blogger or a, have my own website or anything like that. So read my papers. I've, there's lots of my lectures online now um, that people can see. This is this is not rocket science. Seriously, it's simple. Just go out and practice it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much again for being on. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you've enjoyed the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning and injury and rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on Facebook at Coach Patrick Wood, on Twitter at Coach Patty Wood, and on my website www.patrick-wood.com. All of this can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening.